Good evening. Before we begin, I wanted to say a thank you to Dan, the musicians, and the singers who do a wonderful job week after week. Uh, we are so thankful for your service, and we are blessed to have you. And another thanks goes to all of you for the great singing that we are privileged to be part of. This was my second opportunity to be up front during our congregational singing. On most Sundays, my wife and I are usually seated in the middle portion of the sanctuary. And I must tell you that the sound emanating from the back to the front is, in a word, inspiring. Now, I know this has been mentioned on several occasions. I simply wanted to echo those earlier comments. To God be all the glory and praise. Amen? Well, this was the one week during our summer series where we did not have a meal prior to the service. While we were unable to partake in our traditional supper, my hope is that we could enjoy the sustenance that God offers us through the study of his word. Please join me as we pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for your word. It provides direction to us as we navigate our way through life. And may the words that are expressed be the very ones you have blessed. May we be reminded that you are indeed a gracious and merciful God. And we ask that we would be impacted in meaningful ways. And we ask for all of this in Jesus' name, amen. I begin this evening by asking a rhetorical question. It is not intended to elicit a response, but rather to cause us to pause and think. And that question is, on any given day when you have completed your Bible reading, has a sense of awe ever come upon you when you consider the great things that God has accomplished through his faithful people? Well, no sooner had I written that question that it dawned on me that if I were to ask for a verbal reply, I should not be surprised if I was greeted with incredulous looks and a resounding chorus of, why, certainly. Silly questions receive silly answers. The obvious answer is that, of course, we should be overwhelmed. However, as great as some of the saints of the Bible were, they were, after all, human. They had their own frailties and foibles. Now, that is not intended to imply that any of us are on the same level as those earlier heroes of the faith. They lived and served in far more difficult and challenging times than most, if not all of us, have lived. The Bible clearly states that many of those who were called by God made some great decisions of faith, but they also failed on several occasions. At times, they questioned God. They tried to take control of their situations with their own strength, and they wrestled with understanding and trusting God. And the same could be said for you and I. And yet, through it all, God remained faithful. Now, God is not faithful because we have been obedient. He is faithful so we can walk in obedience. The promise of a son to Abraham and Sarah was fulfilled not because they were perfect in their obedience, but because God was faithful to his word. And the Bible is candid in talking about the struggles of prominent people like Abraham and Sarah. The patriarch Abraham was a flawed man. God had certain expectations, and to his credit, 
Abraham met most of them. By faith, he moved and left all behind to come to a new land to trust God. But he also struggled with fear. His faith wavered at times, and he made some questionable decisions that temporarily damaged his testimony. Sarah, too, had moments that she would just as soon forget. And yet, the writer of Hebrews spoke of Abraham and Sarah as those whose faith we should imitate. Their sins and mistakes are not the point of the, of the author's purpose in Hebrews, but rather their faith. And man's sins are recorded in Scripture in order to remind us that the men and women of old were no different than you and I, and to serve as a warning and instruction to us not to repeat their mistakes. Now, with that being said, let's take a closer look at Genesis 21. I've entitled tonight's sermon, Mercy in the Midst of Turmoil. Now, since we had the opportunity to pre-read the chapter, I thought we might break it down into three distinct sections. The first being the birth of Isaac, which covers the first seven verses, followed by what I refer to as family conflict mixed with God's mercies. That would be the middle section, eight verses 8 to 21. And it concludes, the final 12 verses are the covenant that is formed between Abraham and Abimelech. Now, as the chapter opens, we see that God's long-awaited promise made to Sarah and Abraham that they would have a son, it is now being realized. And when you look carefully at the verses, you will notice in the, especially the first two verses, the element of fulfillment is heavily stressed. Notice the words, as he had said, or as he had promised, and as God had spoken to him. The ESL reads that the Lord visited Sarah. Other texts state that he took note of. Well, God's visitation enabled Sarah to conceive. Isaac's birth was miraculous, and it came about through the usual means of procreation. Hebrews 11, verse 11, reminds us that by faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive even when she was past the age. God delivered Sarah mercifully from a hopeless situation of infertility. In bringing life from Sarah's lifeless womb and making our dead souls alive in regeneration, God demonstrates that he does for his people what we cannot do for ourselves. And this meeting was a destiny-altering one for Sarah. Her life would never be the same. And we saw, a, or we see, a similar incident in 1 Samuel 2 with Samuel's mother, Hannah. She, too, had been barren and prayed for a son. And she promised to give this son over to the Lord all the days of his life. And God remembered her. And in due time, she conceived and bore a son, and she called him Samuel. And he was in service to God as a priest, a judge, and a prophet. And Hannah went on to have a total of five children. Now, when we take a closer look at God's promises, we are able to note several things about the character of God. He is faithful, and his promises never fail. Now, some of God's promises are conditional and depend on something that we must do. Others are unconditional, and God will fulfill them 
not because of what we do, but because of who he is. God took what Abraham and Sarah thought was impossible, and he made it possible. Isaac was born at the appointed time, one of God's choosing. Now consider the timeline here. Abraham is 10 years older than Sarah. When he first received the call and the promise from God, and he left Haran, he was 75. When Ishmael was born, Abraham was 86. And now, with the birth of Isaac, he's 100, which makes Sarah 90. So we can see here, God does not operate on our calendar. He may not arrive in the time or the manner that we expected, but he always shows up. And sometimes this can be frustrating for us. Anxiety builds, tension rises, and it could even tempt us at times not to trust God. But even if we do not detect any movement with the circumstances that we might be dealing with, we need to cling to the promises that God has given us. We need to remember that hope delayed is not hope denied. Proverbs 13 verse 12 tells us, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The God who fulfilled his promise to Abraham and Sarah is the same God who spoke creation into existence. He is the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. This is who God is. He said they would have a child, and they did. In fact, God is still fulfilling promises. For those who have accepted the message of the gospel and trusted the Lord Jesus as their Savior and Lord, we have the promise of God's Holy Spirit indwelling. He provides guidance and direction along the paths of our lives. And we also have God's promise not to leave us or to forsake us. So this wait of 25 years may have been agonizing for Abraham on many different levels. But throughout this time, God was revealing himself to Abraham in ways that may have never been learned any other way. He, God, was showing himself to be above man's thoughts, and he was doing a personal work in Abraham. His faith was being tested. So even when we fail, God doesn't. He is consistent, and he's gracious even to fickle people such as you and I. And there are times that we don't keep promises that we have made. But as we have seen, God is different. His credibility is never suspect. He keeps his word. And remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 33, verse 4. It reads, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. One last observation about Isaac's birth. It has been written and discussed that Isaac represents a picture or a type of Christ. There were few births in the Old Testament that had as much expectation as that of Isaac. He was born according to a promise, just as Jesus was. Their conceptions were miraculous. Both mothers were given assurances of God's omnipotence that there is nothing too difficult for God to handle. And they were given names that were rich in meaning before they were born. 
and both births were accompanied by great joy. Now, as we move along, we see that Abraham is dutifully obeying the instructions that God had given him earlier. He named the child Isaac, which means laughter, or he laughs, and he circumcised him when he was eight days old. Now, Abraham's response to Isaac's birth was, we could suspect, one of great joy, although it may have been somewhat muted when contrasted with the unbridled joy that Sarah displayed, which we will see shortly. So what was the purpose of circumcision, and why on day eight? Well, circumcision was the sign of the covenant between God and his people. And as for the eighth day, modern science provides some insight. Medical professionals cite the fact that many newborns have a susceptibility to bleeding in the first two to five days after birth. Hemorrhages and blood clotting can be both extensive and problematic, and in some cases it could cause damage to internal organs. Some health benefits include a decreased risk of urinary tract infection. So why on the eighth day? Well, if we look at it another way, God, our Father, knows best. And as for Sarah's response to Isaac's birth, take note of the first thing she said. She began with, God has made. She is acknowledging God as the one who gave her a sense of joy that she had never known. As you recall in chapter 18, she laughed with more than a tinge of disbelief. But now, her laughter is one of unparalleled exuberance. The doubt that she had once harbored has been replaced with a feeling of jubilation. And after waiting all of these years, she finally has a child of her own. And while this feeling of euphoria still surrounded her, she began to reflect on the laughter that God had made for her. She stated that those who hear of this miracle will laugh over me. Now, many biblical scholars interpret that to mean that Sarah believed that her story would bring the joy of laughter to others. So after decades of disappointment and desperation, Sarah is displaying a new form of laughter, one that credits God's faithfulness. God bestows mercies on his people to encourage their joy in his service. And whatever the matter of our joy is, God must be acknowledged as the author of it. Sarah was bearing out the truth that when God's mercies have been deferred for a long period of time, they are all the more welcome when they finally do come. Consider this quote from Matthew Henry. He wrote, When God gives us the mercies we began to despair of, we ought to remember with sorrow and shame our sinful distrust of his power and promise when we were in pursuit of them. God's favors to his covenant people are such as surpass their own thoughts and expectations. Who could imagine that he should do so much for those who deserve so little? End quote. A point of application for all of us. We who are believers can and should Always walk with a purposeful sense of joy. The joy of the gospel, the joy of our salvation, 
The joy in knowing that the Lord Jesus is returning and the joy in knowing by faith that in the future, God will bring to fruition any yet unfulfilled promises. And as we begin to look in the middle portion of the chapter, we uh, begin to see some fractures in the family dynamic. Jealousy and rivalry, rivalry begin to take center stage. The joy that was present at the birth of Isaac is now seemingly replaced by anger and battle lines are drawn. And this began to surface during the celebration of Isaac reaching an age where he was weaned. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, the child had grown to a point where he no longer needed the nourishment of a mother's breastfeeding. The child began to get accustomed to other types of food, and it was a, a form of independence for the child. <clears throat> now, this was a major event for families of the ancient cultures, as there was a high rate of infant mortality back then. Once a child survived the fragile period of infancy and got past the point of a mother's physical support, well, that increased the likelihood of good health and an opportunity to grow into adulthood. And as mentioned, this was a cause for celebration. And since Isaac was the promised son, all the more reason to celebrate. So on that day, Abraham organized a great feast. Now, notice the timing of the feast. Most commentators believe that Isaac was at this point about three years of age. And this celebratory gathering was not done on the day that he was born, as that would have been obviously too much of a disturbance for Sarah. And it wasn't done on the day of his circumcision. Abraham waited until the day he was weaned. Why? Well, because God had blessed and preserved the child during the perils of infancy. And God's providence in his care and tenderness are to be acknowledged in praise. And as the celebration is underway, things begin to unravel. The ensuing conflict was almost inevitable. Sarah notices that Ishmael is laughing at Isaac. Now, there is about a 14-year difference in age between Ishmael and Isaac. So, was it good-natured teasing, or was it, in fact, a form of mocking? Well, the Apostle Paul references this in the fourth chapter of Galatians. He states that this encounter originated with Ishmael. Paul used this conflict as an illustration of the conflict between those born of the promise and those born of the flesh. He writes in the 29th verse of chapter 4 in Galatians, But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, and so it is now. And some commentators have suggested that the verb that was used uh, for his laughter in verse 9 has some similarity to that that was used in Judges when the Philipp Philistines brought Samson out for their own devious pleasure. Now, consider for a moment what the relationship must have been between the principal characters, excluding Isaac, in this particular narrative. There was likely some major tension between Sarah and Hagar. And as we saw in chapter 16, 
Sarah thought God had prevented her from having children. So eager was she to see that Abraham have a son, she devised a plan to try and help God out. And despairing, she gave her servant Hagar to Abraham as a surrogate wife. And the words that she spoke, that I may have children by her, seemed to make clear that she expected Hagar's child to have legitimacy as Abraham and Sarah's child. However, once Hagar conceived, her behavior toward Sarah was one of contempt. Sarah then blames Abraham for this turn of events. And she said in chapter 16, she said, May the wrong done to me be on you. That, my friends, is what is known as chutzpah. (laughs) It is so much easier to strike out in frustration and blame someone else instead of owning up to our own error and accepting blame for ourselves. And we saw that Hagar was harshly treated by Sarah. But she ran away and she soon returned after receiving a promise from God to multiply her offspring, that being Ishmael and his descendants. So in retrospect, there was no love lost between these two women. Ishmael's presence may have robbed Sarah of fully sharing in the joy of this celebratory feast. He may likely have shared Hagar's disregard for Sarah and Isaac. And as for Ishmael, his life and position was bound up in a conflict between two jealous and feuding women, And much of what happened in his early life really can't be blamed on him. However, his own actions here show that he chose to be part of the problem and not part of the solution. Now, upon seeing this verbal abuse toward her her son Isaac, Sarah responds with a certain fury and indignation. She's enraged and she takes on the protective Uh, like a protective mother, kind of like the mama bear rushing to the aid of her threatened cubs. And it would appear that she views Ishmael as a threat to Isaac. Sarah displays, or has always displayed, an intense loyalty to her son. And she insists that Abraham cast out Hagar and Ishmael. The New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible uses more forceful language. It reads, So she turned to Abraham and demanded, get rid of that servant and her son. He is not going to share the family inheritance with my son, Isaac. I won't have it. Now, curiously, the ESL also makes note of the phrase, my son, not our son. Remember, she's talking to Abraham, not our son, but my son. And this possessive tone seems to underscore her desire to secure Isaac's inheritance. Now, the subject of inheritance is an interesting one. The custom at the time would require that Abraham give his firstborn, Ishmael, a double portion. If a man had two wives and he loved one and not the other, and if each of them had given him a son, Well, the father's decision regarding the doling out of the inheritance would have been clear. He would need to acknowledge the firstborn as the recipient of a double portion, 
even if he were the child of the unloved. In other words, he could show no preference to the son of the loved. Sarah's intention was to see that Ishmael forfeit any claim to the birthright inheritance by having him expelled. Sarah forcefully declares Isaac as the genuine heir. So Abraham finds himself in a bit of a a spot. He is a passive, he's distressed, he's got to be grieved about the uh, what, how Ishmael would mis- misbehave as he did, and he's equally grieved that Sarah would demand such a severe punishment. He loves Ishmael, and he doesn't want to abandon him. But God, in his mercy, comes to comfort Abraham. And while Abraham may have been tempted to not listen to his wife, God intervenes and told him, do so. Gentlemen, this is good advice to follow. Listen to your wives. Ladies, can I get an amen? (laughs) Well, God's purposes and promises would be carried out. God showed him that Isaac is the child of promise, and that through him, the uh, God's purposes and promises would be carried out. Ishmael must be sent away, lest he try to take the rights of Isaac and continue along the path of corruption. And in addition, God told Abraham that great things lay ahead for Ishmael. He would make of him a great nation, because he is your offspring. Now, it is entirely plausible to think that Abraham had some great aspirations for Ishmael. But despite the great attachment and hopes, Ishmael had to be sent away and eliminated from any status of being an heir. It was essential that this crisis occur in order to force Abraham to come to grips with the situation. The sending away of a son of a concubine, granting him no part of any inheritance, was a common practice in the day of, in the culture of that day. By doing so, the children of slaves who were not made heirs must be set free as a means of compensation. The bottom line was that the covenant seed of Abraham needed to be a people by themselves, not mingled with those who were out of covenant. So Abraham, the narrative goes on to say that he rose early and he attend to attend to the task of banishing Hagar and Ishmael from the camp. Now think about how he must have felt. It is likely that part of him really didn't want to do this. But ultimately, he complied with God's direction. He came to realize that there can be no peaceful coexistence or reconciliation with the flesh. The son of the flesh had to be put away forever. So in seeing Hagar and Ishmael off, we note that Abraham does so in the early morning hours. Why? Well, it's wiser to travel in the desert in the cool of the day, and leaving earlier would have made it easier to say farewell without Sarah being present. Now, it is entirely possible that Abraham wanted to express his love for Ishmael and Hagar. If Sarah had been present, that might have been a little bit more than awkward. But notice what he provided them when they prepared to depart. Some bread and a skin of water. Now, a skin of water held roughly three gallons. 
and that quantity would have surely been used up quickly. Abraham was a wealthy man. So why didn't he send them off with a caravan, or at the very least, a donkey laden down with more supplies? At first glance, it would appear that this is somewhat cold-hearted on the part of Abraham. What we actually see here, I believe, is Abraham is now trusting God to do what he said he would do. He trusted that God would be the defense for Ishmael. And Abraham realized that without God's help, no matter what he gave them, it wouldn't be enough. But with God, things would turn out as they should. And the narrative continues, and Hagar and Ishmael left, and they wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is a place that had some degree of prominence in biblical times, as we will see shortly. Some commentators have concluded that Hagar, who was an Egyptian, did not return to Egypt because she believed that God would fulfill, would fulfill his promises in the land that she chose to wander. And soon their supply of water was depleted. The conditions became unbearable. And Hagar begins to despair, and she grows despondent. And she places Ishmael under the protection of some shade, limited as it might have been. And she can't bear to watch. And so the story goes on to say that she moved herself a great distance away. Some have said about a 100 yards, the length of a football field. And Spurgeon commented on this. He wrote, quote, Behold the compassion of a mother for her child expiring with thirst. And remember that such a compassion ought all Christians feel towards those souls perishing for lack of Christ, perishing eternally without hope of salvation. End quote. Hagar and Ishmael both begin to weep. And the scripture informs us that God heard the voice of the boy. Ishmael's name means God hears, and God responded to his plea. Now, this may well have been a humbling experience for, uh, for Ishmael. As a descendant of Abraham, Ishmael is an object of God's special care. He, his cries bring about divine intervention. And the psalmist captured this such a scene like this very well in Psalm 34, verse 18. It reads, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And meanwhile, Hagar is now being reassured by the angel of the Lord not to fear. God has heard your son's cries, and he urges her to get up, take hold of your son, and she is again reminded that God will make her son into a great nation. Hagar was in the middle of a very human experience. Her fears, her sorrows, her worries and concern had all blinded her from seeing God's merciful provision. And it wasn't until God opened her eyes that she was able to see the nearby well of water. And God opened his arms of mercy and sent relief to Hagar and Ishmael as he does for us with the gift of salvation. And this incident should serve as a reminder that God's grace is sufficient. He has a plan, and his timing is perfect. And he is faithful even when the, Lord, when the world abandons us. He does not overlook people who the world considers insignificant. 
Hagar was a slave, and many people would not have cared what happened to her once she was banished from her master's home. However, we see repeatedly in the Bible God's kindness is extended toward people that society often marginalizes. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he didn't spend time with the elites. The balance of his time was spent with the common people. And you don't have to be special in the eyes of society to be special in the eyes of God. And there's a line from an old hymn that kind of captures this beautifully. It reads, There is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. And just as Hagar cried, we too should, we should also for those who are lost. It should stimulate us through prayer and effort to bring the gospel message to those who are sinking in the depths of their own making. And that message is that Jesus suffered and died for our sins. He accepted the wrath of God that was intended for us. And he was resurrected and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And for any who believe, who sought forgiveness, and placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, they would be saved. Hagar was directed to the well for relief and salvation. So too the lost need to be directed toward Jesus, the giver of life. As we close out the chapter, we begin to see the, not begin, we've always seen it, but we see God's faithfulness continued in the life of Abraham. He is now living in the land of Gerar, which is the section of south-central Israel. This is where Beersheba is located. Now, Beersheba was noted for several reasons. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all made their residence there. And when Israel took possession of the promised land, Beersheba became the territory of the tribes of Simeon and Judah. Samuel's sons were judges in Beersheba. And the prophet Elijah found refuge there when Jezebel sought to have him killed. Beersheba was the southernmost city in ancient Israel, with the city of Dan being the northernmost. And there's a phrase, from Dan to Beersheba, this was mentioned on several occasions in the book of Judges and 1 Samuel, and it was used to refer to the settled areas of the tribes of Israel. Beersheba was the last populated place before entering the Negev Desert, and it was about 150 miles north of Egypt. Now, this land of Gerar is <coughs> governed by a pagan king, Abimelech, who we were introduced to in the previous chapter. The name Abimelech was formed from the Hebrew words for father and king, and it was a generic name given to Philistine kings from the time of Abraham all the way through King David. It was a title, much like Pharaoh was a title, for the Egyptian rulers. But it was also an actual name of several men in the Bible, such as Abimelech, son of Gideon, and Abimelech, son of the high priest Abiathar. Now, Abimelech had already granted Abraham permission to settle in the land. He then approaches Abraham along with his top military commander, and he initiates talk of forming an alliance. And it would be one involving no hostility and would be one that was mutually beneficial. Now, 
Abraham was prospering due to God's blessings. And his testimony of living faithfully before his God attracted Abimelech. Abimelech sensed that there was something special about the relationship that Abraham had with God. In fact, he begins the conversation by stating, God is with you in all that you do. And that line prompted another response from Spurgeon when he wrote, quote, I think that the greatest blessing God ever gives to a man is his own presence. If I had my choice of all the blessings of this life, I would not ask for wealth, and I certainly should not ask for popularity, but I should choose as my highest honor to have God always with me, end quote. Abimelech observed that there was a powerful God was with Abraham, and he seeks to formalize his relationship with Abraham and become official allies. And any thought of ever fighting Abraham would have meant he would have to contend with the God of Abraham, and it would appear that he didn't want any part of that. Now that might explain why he was so eager to negotiate a treaty. Notice that Abimelech did not invite Abraham to the king's palace. He came to Abraham as Abraham was recognized as a man of influence and power. He was known to be the object of divine love and intervention. Another point of application for us. Are we living lives that could, that would attract unbelievers to observe the presence of God in our lives? Are our words our actions and our deeds, are they bringing glory to the God who has redeemed us? Are people noticing real change in us? So much so that it is undeniable that only a powerful God could affect such change? Something to consider as we see this uh, interaction between Abraham and Abimelech. And God's faithfulness to be present with his covenant people in their sojourning, was now on full display. Abimelech urges Abraham to swear an oath that he would not deal in a deceptive manner toward him or any of his descendants, which you recall he had done previously. And Abraham agrees that he would act kindly and honestly going forward. And this agreement would span generations. Solemn promises such as this were often made in the ancient world, and they were made formal by the taking of an oath or a pledge. And it was a practice that was highly esteemed, as there was uh, they lived in a society that did not maintain any written records. And there was also incentive for Abraham to enter into this form of agreement because he was sojourning in the land and he really didn't have the status or the rights of a native citizen. So this whole interaction should have served as a lesson to Abraham. Previously, he had lied to Abimelech about Sarah because he thought there would be no fear of God and therefore no protection for himself in this land of pagans. He believed that God would be obeyed and his people protected only where he was known and feared. So we see that sometimes the greatest portion of our fears are totally unfounded. Having established a working relationship with Abimelech, Abraham proceeds to lodging a complaint 
against Abimelech's servants and their takeover of a well of water. And the Bible uses the word reproved, which is a way of bringing gentle correction. The wells of water in those days were necessary for survival. They were an important and strategic property. Abimelech feigns ignorance, claiming he was unaware of this development, that it was news to him since Abraham had never mentioned it before. Abraham then presents to Abimelech a gift of sheep and oxen as well as seven hue lambs that he set apart. And this was a form of diplomacy, something that is still practiced today among world leaders. When they meet, they exchange gifts. And it served as a negotiation in seeking to solidify their covenant as well as securing a right to live peaceably in the land and to maintain ownership of the well. Abimelech seems a little puzzled when he's presented with the seven ewe lambs and he asks for clarification. Abraham explains that the, the lambs were special gifts to show favor and offer some form of compensation to Abimelech for his loss of access to the well. And in doing this, Abraham showed himself not to be greedy or miserly. And when Abimelech accepted, he was recognizing that Abraham had in fact dug the well and that it did belong to him. And the place where this pact was made was called Beersheba, which means well of the oath. It could also be interpreted as the well of seven, referencing the gifted lambs. And to mark the occasion, Abraham plants a tamarisk tree. This is a form of an evergreen tree that could eventually grow to a height of 30 to 40 feet, but it takes a long time to grow. Some uh, have estimated that it may only grow one inch per year. Well, by that uh, measurement, it would take hundreds of years to reach its full height. By doing this, Abraham is looking forward to the coming generations and shows his desire to dwell in the land. And the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants was an eternal one, and he stayed in the land many days. Now, even though or through this time of conflict in his family and among his neighbors, Abraham kept a real, live walk with God. Conflict did not drive him away from God, but he allowed it to push him forward and closer to the Lord. In closing, we saw the topic of water as a major theme in this chapter. Hagar's eyes were opened, and she received relief at the well that God directed her to. And the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well brings into focus that only Jesus can bring lasting relief and ultimately salvation. He alone offers the living water of eternal life. And in speaking to the woman, Jesus explained that whomever drank of this water that he provides would never thirst again. He continued to say that his water would spring up and bring, become as a spring welling up to eternal life. The soul's thirst would never would, would be quenched. And remember that Jesus showed his care for all, regardless of their social standing. So when one puts their faith and trust in Jesus, 
that well will never run dry. And if there be any among us tonight who has never tasted of this living water, would you do that this evening? Would you come before the Lord as did the Samaritan woman? Acknowledge your sin. Ask God to forgive you. Accept the salvation that Jesus offers and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. And like the woman at the well, tell someone what you did. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your unfailing love. Your word reminds us time and again of your faithfulness to your people. And we are also thankful to those who came before us. Your Holy Spirit empowered their commitment and dedication. And we ask that we may serve you in like manner. Give us faithful and trusting hearts to do the work that you have set before us. And may we also be receptive to the urging of your Holy Spirit. And we commit all of this to you. In Jesus' name, amen.